Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello, fabulous Take On Board peoples. It's Helia. I know you are going to love today's episode. Helen has some great stories to share and wisdom to impart. And as a special bonus, you don't just get to hear from Helen. I should also let you know that, well, her dog also has some wisdom to share. So you might hear some additional input in the background. I'm sure you'll agree that it doesn't detract at all from what Helen has to say. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Helia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Helen Bird about the role of regulation, including enforcement in governance. First, let me tell you about Helen. Helen is a member of Corporate Governance Consultation Panel at the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, and she's on the Professional Education Committee at the Risk Management Institute of Australasia. She is a legal academic and the discipline leader of governance studies at Swinburne Law School. Helen credits Swinburne with really putting an industry focus into her work, which has led to her appointments at both ASIC and the Risk Management Institute of Australasia. Helen is a regular media commentator and features regularly in ABC TV's Business Report and the Financial Review. She's also written on governance issues for the Diligent Institute. And I should say, Helen is also a fabulous tweeter about governance issues. So I strongly recommend that you follow her on Twitter for some really good topics as well. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Helen. Thank you for having me. So Helen, before we dig into that topic around regulation and enforcement and in governance, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Tell me, what was your earliest experience of governance? It's a, it comes in a bit of a roundabout story, but um, I grew up in country North Queensland and my family were very much interested in the stock market. So from a very early age, I listened to the radio reports with my grandparents and they used to test me on, on the various stocks along with the price of vegetables and the price of meat. And so I didn't perhaps appreciate, but they were buying and selling stocks in various companies. And one day I answered the phone and a gentleman asked to speak to my mother. And I said, oh, look, she's not here at the moment. I think I was all of about 12. 
And uh, he said, well, um, I need to speak to her. It's rather important. I said, well, I could take a message. And he said, okay. And then he proceeded for 30 minutes to speak to me about the benefits of a takeover of a listed corporation in Queensland and uh, why this was a good decision for her as an investor, which I, I of course, immediately realised she obviously had a lot more shares in this company than I would ever have known. And after half an hour, I said, yes, well, I'll relay your message. So having heard all of the insights about how the company was run and the markets it was in and what the takeover target would do for the company, I had to then tell my mother, whose first remark was, why didn't you just say, call me at work? Uh, I have to say, uh, I think when I look back on it, that, you know, I must have sounded all right because whatever I did, it never occurred to him I was a child. But it actually made from a very early age an interest in the things that I do today. And so having, um, well, two questions in that. A, you relayed the message to your mother. What advice did you give her about the takeover? And uh, secondly, what did she do? What was her decision? As it was, I sort of vaguely knew that I must have discussed it because I, I can hear conversations and I think she was in two minds about it. So I knew that and that's possibly why I paid particular attention to what the gentleman was saying. I think in the end she was resigned to the takeover and allowed it to occur so far as it affected her. Right. Resigned to it though, brothers. No, didn't exactly embrace it with enthusiasm despite his best efforts. No, I don't think so. But um, I certainly, as I said, it, it definitely ignited in me a real interest in how these things worked and why the chairman of a company would be ringing my mother to discuss buying shares. And it was all kind of very interesting. And, you know, I have to say that I look back on some of the things that I experienced in today's world and those conversations still are in the back of my head. That's so interesting. And and even, I, I have to fish more about this. I feel like the man on the end of the phone, even though asking more questions or they had, by the sounds of things, he was telling more. But how big a shareholder was she in this company? Because that is so interesting that the chair is picking up the phone and ringing, cold ringing people by the sounds of things. Oh, well, as it turned out. <laughs> yes. Um, she bought in a float and that, of course, was a very typical thing to do at the time. And she was the 10th largest shareholder. Right. And was he calling the top 10? Was she 10 on the list? Yes, I think so. Right. Interesting. Oh, good on her. And good on her for being, well, it sounds like the whole family was really active in these sorts of things. After lunch every day, we'd listen to what was called the Queensland Country Report, in which we'd have the stock market report and the meat market report and the vegetable market report. And then I would be tested by my grandparents on the prices. <laughs> So I used to, without knowing it, I was unwittingly playing into the stock market game from a very early age as well, although I had no money in it. Oh, my good. Well, you might have uh, secondhand had some money in it <laughs> in a way. That is oh, good on your grandparents and good on your mum. Uh, and even, dare I say it, the chair that rang you, he may not have known you were 12 years old, but in my head, I'm kind of liking that he did know it was a 12-year-old on the end of the phone and he thought, well, that's okay. I'm still going to hand this information over. I think that's a beautiful story. I ask that question a lot of people and that is just a fantastic answer. So thank you. Probably should finish by telling you that I was one of four and my siblings would be sitting around the table at the same time, but immediately following lunch, they would take off. They didn't stick around for the test? No, they said you were perfect. You were the perfect bunny. <laughs> 
Oh, that's interesting. So what are your siblings doing now? I'm guessing they're not governance specialists. You'd be thinking correctly. <laughs> <laughs> or or, or um, trading on the vegetable stock market, whatever that may be. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. That is, I love that story. It tells us so much about governance and a, and a bit of a little bit of a peek into your history as well and, and regional Queensland. For today, we are talking about governance uh, and the role of regulation and um, the role of enforcement in governance. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're a, I think, a fabulous uh, tweeter of governance things. And this conversation came about because you recently tweeted, inverted commas, Clive Palmer finally feels the force of the law and linked to a story about how ASIC had investigated and then charged Clive Palmer with breaches of directors' duties and fraud, which seems to me to be a great uh, opener for our conversation. So can you tell us a bit about what this is about and why it's important? I think one of the themes that always comes through when I'm teaching is that people are very intimidated by regulation, particularly corporate regulation and enforcement actions that are taken and, you know, the great majority of us are law-abiding citizens, good directors, conscientious, want to do the right thing. And really, the law for them and regulation in particular can be a force for good. It can be an educative tool. It can help us to better understand what we need to do in those positions. But there are also a group of people for whom law almost represents an opportunity, a strategic chance to do things. And and sometimes the actions that follow from that can have very deep consequences for the people involved. Now, one of the things that the case involving Clive Palmer involves is it's so much as not even this particular case, that this particular proceeding that ASIC's bringing, but a whole character of actions that have uh, been involving him over time yeah. that made you sort of feel when finally you heard an action was being brought by ASIC after many different investigations, that it was only a matter of time, but finally the time had arrived. Now, I should be hesitating to say all of these are allegations, none of it is proved, and and Clive Palmer deserves his day in court to prove his innocence or otherwise, but the background to a lot of what the controversies about him are concerned really have nothing to do with the proceeding that you just identified then. In fact, most of the concerns with Clive Palmer concerned his time and involvement with something called Queensland Nickel. And there were a lot of hearings about that, particularly by the administrator and then subsequent liquidator of Queensland Nickel, because employees were not paid their entitlements and money that was otherwise available to pay entitlements was discovered to have gone to perhaps less than appropriate uh, other courses or events. So there were lots of question marks asked over that, and it revealed a lot about how carefully the structure of the Queensland Nickel Group had been set up to protect various players in the game, including Mr Palmer. Now, the current case that you're referring to is one that comes off the side of that, in a sense, and it was an investigation that has taken place um, in relation to his company called Mineralogy, the mining company that he owns. But what was suggested was that he allowed or he was participating in some transfers of funds for the benefit of a company called Cosmo Developments. In essence, this is a claim that he used money from one company to fund a media program, which was essentially to help him get elected uh, in the last federal election. And that wasn't an honest use of funds. It wasn't authorised for a legitimate purpose. And we're talking something in the order of $2.2 million. Mm. So it's not an insignificant sum. And so 
ASIC has taken an action against him coming out of that, both under the corporation's law and under um, Queensland laws that object to fraud by dishonestly gaining an advantage or a benefit, which mm. is what he was said to have done. But one of the comments I'll make about regulation is sometimes the smaller actions get taken and you think this is nothing compared to where there's apparently a shortfall of $70 million at Queensland Nichols, where there's a far greater concern about the amounts of money involved. But sometimes it's necessary for the regulator to have a win and a success and they pick something smaller because it's actually manageable and doable, mm. even though there are other bigger issues still in the frying pan that have yet to be brought. As a lawyer who's previously done litigation, sometimes if you can get that win, it actually brings others into line, even though they might be bigger fish to fry. Well, what you can say is, and he's demonstrated this himself, is that he's very good at playing the system. And he has done a number of things over the, in the course of the Queensland Nickel inquiries, which was just stretched out the time required to take those inquiries, to have court hearings. He had the resources and, and the legal ability to do that. So there are certain people, not only who flout the law in the sense that they don't comply with it, but there are also people who know that once you get into litigation with ASIC, how to play that game and make it as painful and as long as possible. Yes. And uh, he, well, let's just say he's had form in that that area. (laughs) And, you know, dare I say it, I know you're on the ASIC corporate governance panel as well, but, you know, ASIC has had... um, Allegations, shall I say, that might be too strong a word, but there's been word that ASIC hasn't always been as strong as they could be, as strong a cop on the beat as they could be. So, you know. So, um, yeah. Sorry, I think I'm talking over you. Pardon me. No, no, jump in. I think um, a lot of that criticism came out of the Banking World Commission mm. and it was a perception that when you went to ASIC with a problem, they offered to settle a case using what's called an enforceable undertaking it's a legal instrument, but it's really basically a, a very specialised form of settlement. And the objection to the use of settlements rather than court cases was it was happening behind closed doors, yeah. the parties involved were large, ASIC might not have been striking very good deals, um, certainly in the sense they were letting people off. Or it, they might have contravened the law, but they didn't even have to admit it. If they did admit it, the, the, the consequences were much milder than they would have been had they gone to court and been ordered by a judge to take certain action. Mm. So there was a perception that if you had a problem, all you had to do was take your, put your hand, hat in your hand and go into ASIC and say, look, sorry about that. Can we do some kind of arrangement by way of a settlement? So uh, coming out of the Royal Commission, Commissioner Hayne argued that that was the worst possible way to go about enforcing the law, that it sent no deterrent message to the parties and that they weren't frightened of ASIC and also there was evidence that ASIC didn't enforce in these agreements if people failed to comply with them, mm. that we saw things broke down and they weren't fixed. I have a couple of comments to make, partly, I guess I sort of see it as fence-sitting here. I don't really have a view one way or the other. I think there was a sustained view that enforceable undertakings have been used and they have been favoured by parties at the big end of town. But on the other side of the equation, ASIC is, like all organisations, subject to a budget and the Commonwealth Government continued to cut their budget starting from about 2014, which meant they had to do as much as they could with a limited amount of funds. Mm. Now, if you're involved in enforcement against people who are well-funded and we're talking the big end of town, 
Mm. Um, the average court case was in the order of five to six million dollars. Mm. So if you had an enforcement budget that might have run to say twenty million dollars, you could use it up very quickly on a couple of cases and not really see a lot of benefit. I give as an example of this in the case of Storm Financial, which was against the directors uh, of Storm Financial, Mr. and Mrs. Casamatas. That case started in 2010 and went all the way to the High Court. But before it got to being a court case, there was a massive investigation into what happened. Storm Financial was a financial advisory and insurance broking service, actually mainly in Queensland. And they encouraged people to invest by lending money against their houses and various other things which were affected by the global financial crisis. At the height of the, the collapse, the customers of Storm Financial collectively lost something in the order of $850 million. So it was a huge investigation to find out what went on and subsequent proceedings against the Casamartises. And after, in 2018, when judgment was handed down, the court ordered that they pay $70,000 by way of a fine, each director, plus they were banned from being involved in the management of a company for a further seven years. Mm. Um, it cost $65 million to run that case. Huh. Investigations and court expenses. Um, and there's just a limit to how much ASIC can do with that. It's, you know, it's a huge investment. So I think we have to balance off the fact that you've got practical limits to what you can do. It has a very large remit of things it can prosecute. And the final thing is that there are cases that are better settled. Not, not every case can be run in court, but following the Royal Commission, the federal government listened to the complaints and they gave ASIC a much, a, a very significantly larger budget of $400 million mm. to prosecute cases coming out of the Royal Commission, creating the expectation that ASIC will in fact do this and ASIC itself announced they would change their policy to what they call why not litigate. So instead of settling cases, they'd first off ask, is this the sort of case that the public interest requires us to bring as a court case rather than settle? And they now have the means to do that. But we're still talking about incredibly well-resourced defendants who are going to take every opportunity, and that means that we're not talking quick results. Mm. And again... Even in the most reasonable of cases, an outcome that takes six years is entirely predictable. We'll see actions taken now that we didn't perhaps see. We'll respond to the argument that ASIC hasn't perhaps been as tough as it could be. But by the time the court results come out, I wonder if anyone will remember the reason <laughs> why they were brought in the first place, because memories are quite short. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I wonder whether... You know, when, when we started talking about this in the Clive Palmer case and having like a, you know, almost a smaller, more manageable case to take on and getting a win in that has an impact on others, I'm guessing that ASIC now being slightly better resourced, ASIC having this slightly more proactive approach, the why not approach to litigation and taking some of this up, has a impact not just on those that action is taken against, but those that you don't have to take action against because they go, oh, okay, maybe we are going to get caught out. We better not do that. Well, I think that's not only just a good supposition on your part. In fact, that's what evidentially has been shown to be the case. Mm. Uh, 
there's uh, quite a lot of research done on this and it's not even unique to corporations law, but there is a belief held that uh, you need to have a few court cases using your most significant and serious remedies against parties and hopefully a few wins, not because you need every case to run that way. In fact, it's much better if you settle a lot of cases, but in order to put pressure on parties to see that the, that the consequences of not engaging and resolving the matter are very severe. Mm. And so in a sense, it puts it puts a bit more of a reality check on you may well have all the resources that you want, but do you want to tie them up in this way? Do you want to wreck your reputation? Do you want to go along this path? Or would you rather just try and accept that you've done the wrong thing and perhaps pay a lesser fine, accept a period of increased supervision by the regulator and get on with it? And again, I hesitate to say these are, there's lots of complaints made to ASIC, but the, the number of cases that filter through to the enforcement stage are not that high. And the general desire, I believe, of most citizens, including in the corporate context, is generally to do the right thing. But there is just a group of people out there who need to be reminded the consequences mm. of not doing the right thing are difficult, expensive, and we need to demonstrate that through court cases. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think people are generally in this for all of the right reasons, by and large. We do generally hear about those, you know, you hear about the worst case examples in almost everything that includes for directors, um, but that doesn't mean that's what everybody is doing. But it is still a good way of just reminding people to literally be on their best behaviour. Yeah, but also in a governance context. I mean, if you are the subject of an enforcement proceeding, then chances are pretty high your governance is woeful. Mm. Really, we don't want to go there. We want to have good systems, good standards, good systems internally. That means this is never going to be a concern of your average corporation. Mm. Um, so, in a sense, if you get to regulation and enforcement, you failed. That's how I see it. You've got to come back and say, what can we do to make sure where standards are so high? That's never going to be an issue for our organisation. Well, what a fantastic question. What can organisations do? What can boards what should they be doing to make sure that their standards are higher in the boardroom so that they don't get to this point? And we, again, we know most of them don't, but what are some of the proactive things that boards should and could and should be thinking about? Well, I mean, I think overall the most important thing is to be well-informed and that is informed about what are your obligations but informed about trends and issues that are affecting your industry. Mm -hmm. So what I guess I'd say is governance is dynamic Governance is ongoing um, and it's constantly changing and disrupting itself. Mm. For example, at the moment, you probably argue that one of the things that we should be starting to inquire about is the role of AI and mm. what it does and how that's affecting governance. And not necessarily at a board level, but in lower levels of your organisation and what reporting you should have about that at a higher level, and what skills your directors should have in relation to that. So that what I guess it means is that we've always spent a lot of time talking about the importance of having directors with experience in, in various areas, and we still do need that. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there's an educational component of what we do, and yeah. we shouldn't be intimidated by that. We should embrace it. We mm. should embrace the opportunity to be well-informed, and we as directors should be asking our boards what kind of board lessons are you giving us? What kind of refreshes are you take, uh, offering us to make sure we remain current for you? And that can take many forms. It can be you can engage in a consultant to come in and, and assist in particular ways. You can encourage your directors or governance staff to do further courses. 
you can attend seminars and podcasts and all of these things, but you've got to be asking yourself the question in the first place and an inquiring mind about what's going on inside an organisation needs to be an inquiring mind about what is happening in relation to governance across the, you know, across the country, international trends, and in that regard, trends that are tangentially connected to, te- to good governance, like as I suggested, go- uh, technology. In regards to AI and technology and how it's showing up in the boardroom, uh, whether directly or indirectly, what, what have you seen? Well, I think it's a very mixed result at this present point. I think that, I don't know whether, how widely it is used, but my sense is that people are moving towards having um, use of uh, iPads and portals and that kind of thing. So you don't have a paperless, you have a paperless trail now. That has a sort of mixed benefit. You see that you can be snowed with a lot more paper if it's not actually written down, but it can be put on the screen. For example, during the Royal Commission, I I recall uh, uh, witnesses for the Commonwealth Bank saying that the board papers were getting up to a 1,000 pages for every board meeting. And, well, I mean, I'm sure there is value in all the material. At the end of the day, there's also a question mark that I have, a sense of chronic unease about that, Mm. that is, what are you hiding? What can't you summarise down to? It's, at that point, pithy issue that you need to know because no one's suggesting anyone's here full time to spend their life reading board papers. And uh, so it does trouble me on that level. But um, the other things that you are supposedly able to benefit from using technology is we're supposed to have increased reporting from lower levels of the organisation about things like risk management and specific issues that affect the way in which people report their information are based on technology now. Now, if you don't know the form in which that information is being collected, the way in which it's being stored, the security with which it's been taken, you can't ask questions about whether or not this is all being attended to in the appropriate ways. And, you know, we can say, oh, that will come with time, but the recent Westpac Austrack matter demonstrates how easy it is for these things to be neglected with the best of intentions. Mm. Um, I had read to read the statement of claim and the defence in that matter. And uh, the problems that beset Westpac started in 2010 when they introduced systems inside Westpac to manage some of the issues in that case. And they had 33 upgrades to their computer software technology following on from that. And at each point, there were further complications. So nobody up the top of the organisation had any knowledge of any of this and wasn't aware that of a concern in the meantime, $11 billion was transferred by Westpac overseas, including possibly to sites in the Philippines where there's allegations of um, child sex exploitation practices going on. But that $11 billion, there's no record of where it went or the records are incomplete. That's a seriously concerning number. As a governance issue, it's not that you have to know what the contents were, but you have to know it's being done properly. You have to know that somebody has taken charge and responsibility for it. And what was very clear and is very clear with technology is there is no overall end-to-end sense of responsibility within organisations. And that's where the trouble is as a director. How do you feel comfortable about something where you've got no idea where it begins and where it ends? Yeah, and even sometimes what it's set up to do. AI can only do as it is instructed. It's not an objective system in and of itself. Um, Again, I had a conversation with somebody recently about the use of AI essentially to get real-time culture 
surveys by, um, you know, particular apps or programs or whatever it may be, basically reading emails and picking up on the types of words that are put in there and that gives you a real-time indicator of culture within the organisation. Um, in some ways, I think that would be amazing to be able to get that in real time. But I also worry about how it's set up, you know, and what the back-end kind of rules are around that and what sort of culture it is measuring because it's it, it's it's not objective. It's it's only as objective as the people who put it together who are also in and of themselves not objective. So making sure it's set up right. How you interpret those words, what significance do you attach to them as a function of who you are and your skill base? Yeah. So the thing with AI isn't just that you've got technology to deal with, you've also got to have expertise, not just in AI, but in your specific area. So if your field is culture you've got to be a culture expert with an AI background if you're yes. at risk then the same and so as a consequence again this whole sense of we are not really facing up to the full extent it's uh, we've in, added to not taking away from the burden of governance I think mm, yeah Oh, I knew the time would go too quickly in this conversation, Helen. We've barely touched on all the things. Uh, but, you know, we might just be able to get you back at some stage in the future. Um, but from the conversation that we've had today, what, what are the key points you want people to take away from this conversation? I think the first thing I would say is there's been a lot of stuff about governance in the paper. And I think we need to be aware that a lot of it's driven by big corporations and events get complicated where you have big corporations. Most of us are not like that. And most of us run honourable institutions and do good things. Yeah. We are still all learning and living in a world that is right now completely out of control because of a virus that none of us predicted. And it demonstrates the need to be always aware and well-informed and informed about your organisation and informed about the world you participate in, which yeah. for me, or the ecosystem is governance. So I just would encourage you to be open and embrace learning, learning yeah. in a range of ways and not being frightened of it, not being put off by it and not allowing someone on your board to say you don't need that. People often talk about the tone from the top within an organisation and if a board, it's not just around the way people interact with each other, but having a curious board and a learning board and a learning organisation will help that flow, I think, to the rest of the organisation too. This is the great thing about, or, or bad thing, depending on how you see it, I guess. But decision making is collective on the board, so you mm. want to get on and, and and have issues that you resolve collectively. But responsibility from the law point of view is individual, so mm. you need to be satisfied in yourself that you are aware that you have made the right, asked the right questions, that you know what the right questions are to ask, that you're aware of the skills that you should have, and what is not being dealt with or is being pushed under the carpet. You're on a board, you're collectively responsible, but you're also individually curious. And I would say the sense I have is that you need to engage as an individual in your own learning mm. and take it as your journey as opposed to what the board requires. Well, now, speaking of learning and being curious, is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? I did that we, of course, actively continue to debate these issues whenever we can. And uh, about a week ago, we conducted a Q&A ourselves on governance and issues affecting us coming out of COVID-19. And I encourage you to watch that. Um, it's been filmed and recorded and the details of where it will be available to watch, I'll disclose if you have a look on my LinkedIn page um, ah. or, or Twitter. I'll try and do it on Twitter as well. But it's not yet currently available. But if you missed it, you can, you can actually watch it at a later date. 
Can, can we put a link to that in the show notes? I, for providing I can give you the detail, but yes. Fantastic. Excellent. So we'll, we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes so people can easily find it, which is not to say you shouldn't follow Helen on Twitter because um, or on LinkedIn as the case may be. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for being with me today on the Take On Board podcast, Helen. Like I say, I knew we would have a lot to cover and I you know, probably knew in my little heart of hearts that we wouldn't get through everything that we wanted to talk about in this particular conversation. But hey, there might be an opportunity for more in the future. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community. Thank you. Good luck to all. Bye. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thanks so much for being part of the conversation. Now, I have two quick announcements. Firstly, as you know, I love bringing good women together. It's why I do this podcast. So if you'd like to meet some great women from the Take On Board community, as well as hear from the very clever Joe Smith from the New Zealand Productivity Commission on how boards with the right mix of skills and experience can build frontier firms, you only have a few days left to book for the next Take On Board live event on Wednesday the 4th of November. I'll be in conversation with Joe about her report, its findings, and you'll get a chance to ask questions of her too. There's a link in the show notes or on my website. I hope to see you there. And while I'm here, my favour of the week. In honour of Joe joining us from New Zealand, I would love it if you could share this podcast and the event with anyone you know over the ditch in New Zealand. If you know someone who's interested in all things governance or would like to hear the voices of women from the boardroom, I would love it if you would share this podcast with them and ask them to subscribe. Thanks so much for being part of the Take On Board community and tune in next week for more tips and tricks on being your best in the boardroom.